Hey, hey, folks. Uh, this is Miguel, and this is also the BIPOC Artist Hour, a, a podcast dedicated to lifting up the unique experience of people of color in the arts, academia, and the real world. And because we always talk about the struggle, we are also about what brings us joy. This is actually a special edition of the show, uh, co-hosted by my wonderful Play Black co-host, Jay Cottle. Jay, say what's up. Hey, everyone. I snuck in, and Miguel just felt like I should, you know, stick around because... I was going to take over anyway. I'm so happy to be here. Happy to be here. I like what you did with the room. Uh, it's very different than our play black space, but I like how this how this one works. You know, we, we, we try out here. We're still in boxes, but we try it. We try it. Yeah. Today, we are joined by Shola Bemi, a Queens, New York native of Nigerian descent. His articles on pop culture have appeared in Blavity and 2190. He's also been featured on the PIX11 and CBS for partnering with nonprofit organizations and government agencies to activate public spaces in New York City neighborhoods of color. I love that. His debut novel, They Were Chosen, began as a screenplay he imagined while studying at SUNY Binghamton and is here to talk about his book and also just about himself. Shola, how you doing? I'm doing well, guys. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Really excited to kick it with you guys today. We're excited to have you, man. We're excited Same. to have you. Absolutely. Let's just start with the basics, man. So, like, what what got you into into writing overall? Like, give give us the the lowdown. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I so I went to a private school um, in Jamaica, Queens, from first to fourth grade. And my parents moved to a different part of Queens, and ultimately I had to go to public school. So at the private school I went to, I was wearing a uniform, small classes, completely different culture, very sheltered kids. Public school is a totally different beast. You know, kids already have a sense of style, very mm -hmm. strong sense of identity. So naturally, um, I stuck out like a sore thumb, and I was getting into a lot of like, a lot of, a lot, a lot of fights and just conflicts with other kids in the fifth grade at this new public school. So one day, my fifth grade teacher, she assigned our English class, um, she assigned us to do a one to two page memoir on our favorite memory, um, our favorite family memory, just something that involved family. Um, and I decided to write about going to Coney Island with my mom. Um, taking the F train from Queens all the way to the last stop in Coney Island in Brooklyn, uh, the Ferris wheel, the beach, um, Nathan's hot dogs, all of that good stuff. Right. And I just did the assignment to do the assignment. She saw something really special and unique about how I wrote the memory and just how I illustrated certain things. And she was also aware that I was getting into all these fights with these kids. So she pulled me aside and, got me a separate notebook and said, what I want you to do is every time you feel like you're about to get into an issue with another kid, I want you to sit, think about it and write about it. You know, treat this notebook like your journal. Was it effective in preventing me from getting into additional fights? Probably not as much, <laughs> but I did. I did try to take advantage of the journal. Um, and just naturally, I kind of just like developed an affinity for writing. Um, and started to really enjoy it outside of the assignment that she that she gave our class that day. That's amazing. Powerful good teacher, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's she's my favorite teacher of all time. She's great. Oh wow. Does she know that you write now? She does. She does. Mm. Um funny enough. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, how was that? It 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 was uh it was a full circle moment. So in twenty fifteen, when this was about a year into working on the book, um, I had produced a YouTube documentary titled Emerge, just trying to capture some of the um, real life themes that inspired me to write the book. And I reached out to her to be in it and to talk mm -hmm. about meeting me as a nine-year-old kid. And at the time I was, I was 21 or 22. So um, I remember us just sitting in her apartment and just having offline conversations when the camera stopped rolling about how proud wow. she was and just how crazy it was to see all of that kind of manifest into me wanting to write a book that's amazing yeah it's it's pretty fantastic like when you look back on on uh your like successes it's it's pretty crazy how that almost always correlates with like a specific person pushing you you know what i'm saying like 
I, I always say that I try to give back and stuff like that because if it wasn't for like two or three people, I wouldn't be where I'm at. So, yeah. you know, uh, I don't know. I, I, I always dig in on those mentors because it, it's a really special thing. Mm-hmm. So why this book? Like, uh, it, it seems like it's been a project of yours for a while. You started it when you were in school, kind of ex- experiencing a similar setting as the characters uh, themselves. Like, give us a lowdown on why this book. Yeah, so um, even though I fell in love with, with writing at a really young age, I didn't really have a lot of exposure to black fiction growing up. So when people talk about the Toni Morrison's, the um, Richard Wright's, um, even folks like Ta-Nehisi Coates, I mean, he's more Mm -hmm. modern, Mm -hmm. but um, I didn't really, I wasn't really exposed to those kind of authors or their work growing up. Um, That's, that's one part of it. And I think, Around the time I started writing the book, I I was personally dissatisfied with the disparity in attention that different issues affecting the Black community were receiving. Mm-hmm. I felt that police, and I still feel like this to this day, that police brutality is one of those things that all progressive, forward-thinking uh, Black people can agree on as a huge issue, um, something that's been going on for a long time and affects livelihoods on different levels. But when we get into conversations um, around other issues affecting the Black community, that that um, that consistency and that like strength in numbers element mm-hmm. isn't really there sometimes. And it was something that I was just starting to really understand around the time uh, I started working on the book in college. So I think those two things really um, pushed me to, to to think about the Black Lives Matter movement and to really think about Black literature and to, to try to produce something in, in spite of those things that I was realizing. Um, I think that's a perfect time to actually share with folks kind of what uh, They Were Chosen is about. Um, it's a really great novel uh, about Jermaine Asori, who maintains a small circle and is convinced that college is a scam. Kendra Gaskins pushes herself to embody class and poise as she juggles friendships, her mother's expectations, and her own thoughts. Like most 20-somethings on their predominantly Black campus, both students expect this semester to be like the others until circumstances beyond their control force them to question their friends, their community, and themselves. They Were Chosen invites readers to reflect on Blackness, massage noir, and bystandership through the experiences of ordinary people in New York City during the 2014 Black Lives Matter movement. Um, It's really interesting hearing you say what you just said about kind of, you know, the fragmentation of some of these issues and how some get more light than others, because there was definitely a thread where Kendra kept trying to uh, bring up like she was really shaken by this assault that happened or this alleged assault that she wanted to find out more about. Right. She kept bringing to different people like, hey, I have this idea. Hey, how are we addressing this? And these people were people who were like at the forefront of like organizing their people and putting things on. And they were really resistant to that idea. And so was that an expression of what you were just talking about, about why we don't give things focus or where, where did that particular thing come from? Yeah, um, that's that's definitely it's it's part of that that um, theme that I wanted to unpack. I think different different people and even people within the black community simplify black people and assume that all right, like all you know, we're kinfolk, we're the same, we look alike, mm-hmm. or we must have the same upbringing, we must have the same political beliefs. We're most likely going to fight for the same things, and. Um, as much as I wrote this book to illustrate how that's not always true, I also wrote this to humanize Black people. Like, we we don't all have to be the same just because our skin color looks the same. And granted, there were implications for that in the story, but mm-hmm. that's also life, right? Um, I, I always, I have this joke that I, I crack with um, one of my friends where I'm always like, life, life is just a series of negotiations. And we're always trying to negotiate our interests and what we want with other people. And even if we got two black people in the room, it doesn't mean there's going to be any less negotiating happening between 
what one person thinks is really important and what another person mm-hmm. might not. And there's a lot of that in the story for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And, you know, when you first approached us about uh, doing uh, an interview uh, over at uh, Play Black slash the BIPOC Artist Hour, uh, you mentioned specifically that you wanted some feedback and to have a conversation with black men. And I, 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 I it kind of ties into what you were just saying, but could you like elaborate more on, on why that specifically? Yeah, definitely, man. I, I, so I used to, when I first started working on this project, I had uh, about a nine to 10 page sample of chapter one that like, I would just randomly start conversations with people. Hey, like you look like someone who reads 10 seconds down the line. If I'm lucky enough, could I email you a sample from a novel that I'm working on? It's only eight pages. Would love your feedback. And I mean, I'm not like a strong mathematician or anything, but I would estimate that I had probably a a 96% success rate with women, particularly black women. Um, And I don't think, I don't think black men don't read. I just didn't, I never, I just don't really come across a lot of black men who read or just a lot of men who want to read this type of work. So um, I always told myself that when uh, this book is out, when it's done, it would be dope to connect with other black men who have opinions, whether they're similar to mine or different, just on the work and just experience how they're taking in the work. Since I didn't really get that experience uh, as I was writing the work and really trying to gauge people's feedback. That's really interesting. And so you were just talking also about the multitudinous of blackness, right? And in this book, there's a thread in Jermaine's story about him understanding his own blackness, uh, particularly while confronting his Nigerian heritage. There's a very um, a scene earlier on in the book where his father makes a very clear distinction between, you know, being Nigerian and being a black American. How much of that has been reflected in your own personal journey? Because you are Nigerian-American, I believe. Yes, yes. And I, I put a little, I, I guess with, with Jermaine, it's, it's, there's a moment where there are different moments where he has to confront those two identities. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, well, first off, I didn't, I wanted to make sure that in writing Jermaine, I wasn't writing myself because that just wouldn't be fun. Mm-hmm. So I didn't unpack what that, confrontation has looked like for me over the span of time in the story for me personally it's been it's been lifelong and there's been different stages of it um growing up there was definitely a stigma around uh being nigerian or just being african my full first name is oluwa shola so every year on the first day of school once the teacher's on the tennis sheet, and you know, you kind of know with the last name, the first oh, letter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once she gets through D's, the E's, the F's, and it's and she's he or she starts pausing a little bit, I know, I know it's my name. And then they try to sound it out, they butcher it. <laughs> Not everyone knows I have the crazy first name. I'm African, haha, booty scratcher. Like it's it 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 was it was wild growing up. Um, but I think uh one thing that one one moment that really shifted my experience as um, a Nigerian American was just going to college and meeting other Nigerians um, and even Ghanaians and Liberians who were taking a lot of pride in, in the music from their countries, their languages, um, folks who had a lot more friends from their countries. Because going into college, I might have had maybe like less than a handful of folks that I spoke to on a regular basis that were actually African. Um, and for some folks, they had a lot more. Um, and then going to college kind of, it, 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 it helped me cast like a wider net and create a, a larger network of West African people who really helped me understand that aspect of my culture and identity outside of the household. Yeah, that's a classic uh, first generation immigrant. Uh, yeah, we're all first gen here. Story. Yeah, we're all first gen. Like uh, the sitting in the cut, sitting between cultures, uh, mm-hmm. knowing that you're experiencing uh, a, a America as a uh, a black man, but also knowing that your parents don't have that same experience. Uh, yeah. it, 
all those little cultural shifts are are, are, are definitely just like first gen staples, which yeah. I I think uh, both Jay and I very much <laughs> appreciate. And can I add sure. something? Please. Yeah. Um. So even when you think about movies like Juice, um, and like all these other cult classics, I didn't I didn't have exposure to that until right. like I was a teenager. Yeah. I would hear rumblings about like The Wire. Um. I mean, Spike Lee. Spike Lee found his way into like every, almost like every home, one way or another. From what I hear from other people who are first gen, but there are certain cult classics like Above the Rim, even like Biggie, Tupac, even like Michael Jackson. Like, there's just certain things that my parents didn't have a natural affinity for and didn't pass down. So on the Black American yeah. side, I almost I almost feel like I was like a late bloomer to like fully yeah. indulging in like blackness as a cultural experience Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. so than like an identity Mm -hmm. yeah no that's really that's it i think for us i don't want to speak completely for miguel but we had the first gen piece we also had the religion piece which i think played a lot into like the things that we could and could not consume and so yeah you get to college i remember (laughs) in college there there was a a trip to Clark University in Worcester and the Alana clubs would always go every year. Um, but I would never get invited. And I was just like, am I not black enough to go to Clark? And, and that was like the thing that just all throughout. College, and it was funny because I, I ran the school's gospel choir, but I never got to like be in those conversations. And there was like yeah, all that music from the nineties that I feel like I didn't know. And there definitely was a point where it felt like, yeah, I have to like to learn and discover the cultural aspects of blackness, which was a joy, but you definitely feel like you're working from a deficit and like, you gotta figure that out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, it speaks to what you're saying about us not being a monolith. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Like we all, we all have these different experiences uh, and we all have the same issues and needs that we need to figure out. uh, And we're coming from different places. It was kind of reflected a little bit in uh, there was a bit of like a a colorism conversation happening between, Mm -hmm. uh, was it Faye? Yeah, yeah. Kendra yeah. and Faye. Uh, Kendra and Faye. Uh, Faye being a, a more dark-skinned uh, black woman and Kendra being more light-skinned. And it's something that uh, we constantly talk about. I know Jay and I do. Yeah, I'm uh, Afro-Latino, right? Like, So, like, uh, I, depending on who you talk to, they either think I'm uh, uh, mixed race, which, I mean, all, all Afro-Latinos are to, some, <laughs> to a certain extent. They, they think I'm straight-up black. They think uh, they hear Miguel, then they assume that I don't speak English. You know what I'm saying? So like, it's a it's a whole gamut of, of, of whatever it is. But I, I, we still hold pieces of that uh, black experience, mm-hmm. uh, and, and we and we try to navigate it in different ways. Um, that kind of leads me to my next question. Actually, like half of your book is from the point of view of uh, a black woman, and you know we're, we're talking about our experience as first generation uh, uh, black men, but like. Was writing Kendra difficult for you? Like, uh, how like how how was that process? Like, and how was the feedback you got from Black women helped shape the character and that overall story? Yeah, extremely difficult. <laughs> very very challenging. Uh, it made it fun, but I had to once once I was committed to writing a black female main character, especially with first person uh, perspective, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. So um, I, I owe a lot of um, my success in writing her character to black women who are my friends, um, black women who are my mentors, uh, black women who read different pieces of the book and, had things to say about, all right, like, why is this character responding in this particular way? Um, Or why is this character, why is she, why is this her first thought as opposed to X, Y, and Z? There were very, like, fundamental things that I had to unpack and unlearn while writing Kendra. Um, There are assumptions, a hundred different assumptions that I entered the process with that I had to really take a step back from. So I would say, and it's not like a, it's not like a, it's not like a clear assumption, but it's like a subconscious one. That's what I'm going to say. It's not, it wasn't a conscious 
assumption, but more so a subconscious mm-hmm. one. Just this idea that girls talk about guys all day. Mm-hmm. So I, I started writing Kendra when I was 21 and mm-hmm. just would assume that, all right, like a lot of her scenes probably should be talking about Jermaine or talking about mm-hmm. some other dude. And mm-hmm. it's not that women don't talk about men, but they have a million other things to talk about. Right. And my mentor, Batabile, uh, we had a conversation um, when I was still in college around the time I had, I was kind of flirting with that discovery and she introduced me to the Bechdel test. And about to say. I, mm. I, I forget, I forget the year the Bechdel test um, was first conducted, but essentially um there was an individual who ran through, just reviewed a, just a litany of films and focused on scenes that prim- just included women, just scenes where women were interacting with other women. And they were trying to see how many times in these scenes a man was mentioned. To what extent do these scenes depict women having an interaction and their talking about a guy and virtually I believe virtually all of them or most of them were scenes where two women two or more women were just talking about a guy talking about a guy and if if you peel the like if you just peel the onion back another layer a lot of these directors writers and producers of these films were men so by tabulate's point was look you know you have a natural gaze that's gonna come with uh, a lack of awareness around the kind of conversations and experiences that women have. Your best bet is to talk to women um, and not even just me. She was encouraging me, like, you know, really leverage and really like listen deeply um, to the different things that the women in your life talk about. Not necessarily TV, even though um, shows like Insecure and Girlfriends, um, a lot of those shows definitely like, really paved the way for me to really think critically about black women experiences and to see the fullness of their experiences beyond men. Um, but, but really I, I have to give a lot of credit to the women I've crossed paths with in my life and been able to build relationships with for helping me de- like, like build a nuance and build a, per- a full perspective yeah. around just what it could, what it could mean and what it could look like to be a, mm-hmm. a woman in America. And I'm not going to sit here and say, I get it. Cause there's still a lot. There's, 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 there's a lot of stuff I didn't write about. There's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. I can't write about and mm-hmm. I'll never fully understand, but those relationships and those conversations helped me get far enough to write Kendra. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And so I guess on the flip, you were talking now about, you know, how we as men sometimes confront or understand or have biases about, you know, the the experience that folks who identify as women go through. And so there's also this very interesting relationship between Jermaine and his friends. And it seems like um, a lot of their relationship is where you are uh, exploring that, you know, misogyny and uh, bystandership in a lot of ways. And so Let's talk about Samson, for example. He's someone who was problematic in a lot of ways, right? And that was a breadcrumb that was dropped from jump. Uh, but he wasn't really called out on it, right? And so as as Black men and with these Black friendships, when we see problematic behavior, one, what was the commentary you're going for on that? But then two, how do we have those conversations with the people we care about when it's just like, this little sus, this ain't, this ain't right, this ain't it? Yeah. That was a two-part question, so I want to make sure I grasp the first one before mm-hmm. I get to the second one. You mind repeating the first question? Yeah. What was what were you going for in that dynamic and that relationship? What were you commenting on? And then the second piece is just how do we have those discussions? Yeah. On the surface level with Samson, um, again, on the surface level, definitely rape culture, um, definitely uh, just the, the the idea that you know people will show you who they are. Mm-hmm. whether or not you see it or not. But on a deeper level, he's still a human being. I I tried to I tried to make his character complex by hiding his problematic thoughts and his problematic nature behind what appears to be a sense of humor. And 
there there are a lot of people who are really funny people or like they're thought to be that people think of certain folks as like really exciting to be around or the life of the party. There's there are those kind of elements that I was thinking of like really injecting into Samson um to sugarcoat and mask certain inclinations that he had that were truly problematic. And in doing so, I, I really wanted readers to to think about folks who aren't just in your face problematic. Like it could be the class clown. It could be the person at work who's loved by everyone or the, the person you feel bad for because they're going through a loss. Like anyone can be problematic. So I didn't I I didn't want to write him in a way that was just all bad, bad, bad. There are like little things that he's going through in his personal life that I didn't they weren't necessarily justifying his behavior, but they were in tandem with his behavior. And again, it was to humanize him and give as full of a picture as possible around, well, he's problematic, but He's also this, and he's also that, and he's also going through that. And so, when we have problematic people in our our lives, how does how we how do we do that? Because they're they're people, and we care about them. Absolutely. I mean, it's 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 a case by case. I people are tough. <laughs> people are tough to deal with, even when they're not problematic, right? Mm-hmm. I think we we have a responsibility to ourselves first um, to really own and go after what we think is is the right thing to do um and to really differentiate between right and wrong i think that's something my parents will always like be drilling to my head like you know the difference between right and wrong you know the difference between right and wrong Mm -hmm. and as adults i think we have a lot more agency and autonomy to to live in that every day um and a lot of times that doesn't even mean uh looking for the problematic people in the world and like chasing them with 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 like your words sometimes that means just being an example or like being the opposite of what we feel is problematic what we see as not the right thing to do but but there's no one size i I definitely don't think there's a one how does the saying go i one size fits all i don't think there's that that's the right approach to to think about it with but i think being value based and really owning val- owning your values and living in that is like one of the best ways to 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 take a stand against what we see is wrong and what we see is problematic for sure. No, definitely, and uh, I think a phrase I try to use often is like uh, it's a it's a it's a reason, not an excuse. Like. Uh, a, a person can have a, a very valid reason for having the the, the problematic nature that they have, uh, but that doesn't mean that they don't have agency over their actions, and that they don't they don't ultimately you know need to confront what they've done, uh, which is a an interesting like dichotomy, right? So yeah, no, I I I totally I feel that. Uh, and s- something you mentioned earlier about uh, your your mentor, uh, could you? Uh, tell me the, their name again. Yeah, her name is Batabile. Batabile. Yes. Um, would you think that, or did you write Professor Graham to kind of be like that person who is like kind of calling out the youth, like like, like uh, imparting that wisdom, uh, making them think and find out the the like the answers themselves through like twisting and winding turns, like. Uh, is there a Professor Graham in your life? No. And I think that's part of why I wrote him. Because there are different... So there there are aspects to Professor Graham that um, I saw bits and traces of in certain people and faculty, but the relationship aspect was just never there. So Professor Graham is someone who builds relationships with some of his students and um granted i had a very i still have a great relationship with my mentor batabile but she 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 wasn't a a professor at Mm. the time she worked very high level within the administration of my my college but um 
I do think that there's there's a there was a, always a thirst for a black male professor who was old enough to impart wisdom, young enough to still understand some of the challenges that I might be going through in college life and had the time to impart that wisdom and relate to me. And I think that that trifecta is really hard to find, especially in a black male. Um, a lot of professors, just over time, what I've realized is a lot of professors are probably just stressed with life and don't got time to build with some 19, 20 year old kid that still doesn't know like apples from oranges. Um, a lot of professors are married. Professor Graham is a single black male, which gives him a lot more time to invest in campus life and invest in certain causes. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not too, I'm not too uh, salty about not, not yet finding uh, Professor Graham in in my academic life, but I am very grateful for um, a few different people who took the time out to mentor me and pull me to the side. And um, yeah, I can think of a couple, but I've never had a professor who was able to fulfill that capacity. And 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 and, and it was really fun to write to write Professor Graham just from that from that standpoint. Mm. Who knows? Maybe you'll you'll be a, a professor. Grab to somebody else. I was about to day. say, Professor Bemi got you. Got a where? Where you teaching? What department are you gonna be in? Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll see, man. If the check is right, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe it'll work out. Who knows? I'll, I'll be very open to it for sure, for sure. Ain't that the, ain't that the truth? The, the, right. Money's gotta work out. <laughs> Show it's gotta me work out. the dollar signs. Um. So there's this concept of the artist citizen, which explores the responsibility, the perceived responsibility that artists have towards their communities. And so this book and this work is filled with some of the themes that we've talked about. And community work is a large part of what you do as a professional. So where does the concept of the artist citizen live for you? How does it land for you? I'll be honest. It's it's still something I'm trying to figure out because my my art doesn't directly connect with my civic engagement so the the community based work that i do um and that 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 looks like a few different things that i that i've enjoyed whether it's been collaborating with nonprofits and government agencies to activate streets where in a particular community folks are remembering this street fondly for where someone may have lost their life and then saying, you know what, how can we work with this community to reimagine the street and to, 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 to get folks to think about this street in a positive way. Um, some of that work has looked like also um, this impact investing and taking ideas for the kinds of youth programs that communities want to see and designing RFPs for different small businesses, different organizations to then draft proposals as to how they can leverage funding to create these programs in their respective communities. So that work has been really eye-opening. It's been really challenging and, and rewarding, but it doesn't it doesn't directly connect to what it means to be what it has meant and what it has felt like to work on a book for seven years and connect with people through this story and get people to start certain conversations. I think with time, um, with time, I'm going to build more awareness and just learn more about the challenges some of the communities I've worked with have faced and might continue to face. And I might also develop a deeper awareness around some of the themes I wrote about. Because even when you write something for seven years, for me, I was constantly reflecting on college life differently at 22, 23, 24, and so on, that put me in a position to go back and maybe change a few different things in the story. And I'm, I'm, I do think that there's a possibility that with time, I'll be able to think more critically about police brutality and poverty and racial discrimination in a way that might complement the work 
that I still hope to continue doing in community in the future. But right now, it's it's a work in progress, like build, bridging that gap between um, the artist and citizen. You know, I from the outside looking in, I don't think it's as far away as you might think, right? I, I'm thinking particularly about the, that pre-rally moment where um, they're talking about you have to find your way in, right? Find your way into what makes sense for how you want to show up in this conversation, in this space. And a lot of it was also depicting young black people being really involved and thinking critically about a lot of those issues. And so I feel like, I don't know if you notice fully, but I think you're already moving in that direction and already exploring some of, of how that, of how that works. You make such a great point. You make a great point. And I think, I think because it's, it's fiction, I've almost like put it in a box. Mm-hmm. Like even though the subject matter is related to things that I'm experiencing and having a chance to be involved in in real life, I've almost boxed in the content because it's content. And I probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> One informs the other. You know, yeah. I think there was this, uh, this artist that we work with a lot down here. Her name is uh, Zakia, and she... Her work is all about like where does activism and art like live and we forget that sometimes the things we see the things we read really do help shape and impact how we move about the world or think about the world so like i said i I think you're doing it i think it's happening i appreciate that thank you for sure and you know uh something jay your question made me think of a of something off the cuff a little bit uh as people of color, uh, we often kind of shy away from uh, labels that give us kind of grandeur. You know what I mean? Like, uh, uh, like I, I've been playing the the piano for like twenty years, and I'm a, pro- a professional musician, but I struggle to call myself an artist sometimes. Uh, and you're, you know, you're doing a lot of activism, and you've been working on this book for a long time. And I, I wonder how you feel about that label, like. How do you, like would you call yourself an artist? I think you are because you know you 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 produce something that uh, is has commentary and uh, necessitates the, uh, a deeper level of thinking that is art for, for me. But like, how do you feel about that label? I have mixed feelings. I I do identify as an artist, but um, while I was writing the book, I saw how that label, that title, got commodified on social media to mean a lot of different things that I didn't immediately resonate with. Um, even like the term creative, same, same thing that, that those words mean different things for different people. And the more people we have using those words, the, the more of a challenge there is for me to welcome those titles with open arms. And I think, what has allowed me to, one of the things that has allowed me to be comfortable with calling myself an artist or even more specifically an author is just owning my definition, um, which is very, very similar to yours, Miguel, if not the same definition, which is just really creating work, bodies of work um, that provokes thought, that starts conversations, that pushes certain perspectives, challenges other perspectives and discomfort in that and yeah even and, and the author title is so new one thing i w- one thing i want to share you with you guys is um an analogy that i would tell people while i was working on the book because this was my first book so i wasn't really an author until it was done right it's like i'm doing author things and dealing with author challenges but still not an author Right. So year year one through seven of working on the book, I would tell people working on your first book is like being four years old and telling people you want to be the president of the United States. It's like, ooh, like, yay, that's so (laughs) awesome and noble. Like, go you. If you get it done, I mean, cool. Good for you. But, you know, until then claps claps and claps you know what i mean mm-hmm. um so that's that was a unique challenge that i i've dealt with in calling myself an author because for so long i've been writing 
more I've been writing way longer than I've been an author. I've been trying to become an author for significantly more time than I've been able to call myself one. And that's its own challenge. It's interesting. As you were talking, I immediately delineated in my mind, if you're writing, you're an author. To me, the difference was you weren't a published author yet. Right. And I think sometimes we're so product oriented as artists in particular, right? We're just like, I got to do the thing for it to be real. I got to finish the thing in order to like claim the title that we're so unkind to ourselves. And it's just like, but you're doing the work. If the work of the author is to write and to tell a story, that's what you've been doing this entire time. And now it's done and you can share it. And that's different. And that's a, a huge benchmark, but you've always been an author. But I do want to talk about this though. It was seven years. How do you stay motivated? How do you continue to push through something, particularly when it's your first big project of this nature? How do you like continue to do that over such a long period of time? What continued to motivate you? Great question. A lot of so I'm one of those people once I once I tell like too many people mm. I'm doing something. Mm-hmm. Now you gotta like, do it. Damn, like yeah. if I don't finish it, like everybody's gonna look at me like, oh, he yeah. was just talking. Like he was just <laughs> he was just wanted the attention. There was a lot of that for me, especially in the early stages. Um I didn't want people from my college, people from uh my church or just people in my community to see me as a quitter mm. or to see me as someone who just says stuff and like announces these big goals and doesn't work to fulfill them to to completion um and then i truly wanted to do it like i honestly i've been wanting to write a book since i was a senior in high school that was when the idea first really like came to my mind to actually publish a book i wanted to i wanted to know what it felt like to say i worked on this i was able to get it done i just didn't think it was going to take so long Sure. If it was up to me, it would have been a year. And I thought it would take a year because I thought I was that good. And, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm not like them. They're not like me, you know, ego. Right, right. And then also just wanting to be, you know, I'm a 22-year-old author, like, you know, pump my chest. Mm. But quality over quantity. And, and mm. the, the work was not quality <laughs> a year in. <laughs> so wanting to produce something that was good, wanting to actually publish a book, and also wanting to to walk the walk and have people recognize that, you know, if you want to write a book, you can do it if you're committed mm-hmm. to it and if you really want to do it. Those are all things that really pushed me time and time again when I felt like, when I really felt like quitting and really felt like taking like long hiatuses away from the work. How did it feel to finish? What was that moment like? Was there like a bottle popped? Was it just like a breath? Were there tears? What was that? It's done. It was weird. It was weird because, and I'll tell you why, I had, I still have it in my phone, actually. It's called, it's a note where for like the last four years, I would just, so this is the thing, right? A lot of the writing doesn't happen when you're writing. Right. A lot of the writing happens for me when I'm on the train and I mm-hmm. see, I see how two people like, dap each other up and then I'm looking at their hands and I'm like that's there's something about the way those two hands folded into each other that I can literally write out better than how I wrote it three months ago their hands folded into each other boom that's a line that's an edit that I'm making on the train so what I would do is I had this notes it's a note in my notes called chapter editions and when I finished, essentially, I had to finish all of those additions. Mind you, I would add some, take some out, spur of the moment. It was unpredictable. So when I finally was, when I was finally done, I was looking at the chapter editions and it was empty. And it just felt weird. I was just like, well, like, I should probably go back and look at this. And, you know, like, there might be a, a, a typo somewhere. And that was one of my biggest fears. Um, thankfully I, I had a chance to work with, um, Latoya Smith, who was, who professionally edited the book a number of times, Mm -hmm. but still like, I'm not, I'm not working with a big like publishing company Mm -hmm. here. Like this is like a a self effort. So it felt very weird. It felt a little scary. 
I knew I was done, but at the same time, I wasn't sure like if I should be done. But I still kind of knew like this, this is it. Like there's nothing else to add. There's nothing else to take away. This is where you have to stop. Um, and it slowly set in. I, I didn't have a bottle pop moment because I had to slowly accept that this is no longer something you need to edit. You don't need to keep showing people this. You need to start thinking about promotion, presale. So it's been... It's, Accepting that it was complete was a journey in itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a word. Yo, I mean, like, low-key folks get depressed after it finishes something like that. You know, like, mm. you, you, you've been working on something for, for so long. You've been, you've had all these thoughts of how it's going to go, and suddenly you're done. Folks, a lot of people get low-key just straight-up depressed after they finish yeah. something that's so momentous. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. and, you know, I just have one final question for you for this uh, section uh, before we get into some joy. Uh, what do you want people to take away from uh, They Were Chosen? One thing that I want people to take away from They Were Chosen is that it's it's okay to not be the best version of yourself all the time. Mm. It's okay to mess up. It's okay to look back and say, I could have done X, Y, and Z differently or better. The hope is that you just get to that point where you can say, all right, I should have stepped up or this is where I messed up, but this moment doesn't define me. I can be a better version of that person if I'm willing to do that. Um, especially thinking about Jermaine's journey and even to an extent Kendra's journey. They they each had a, a vision for what their semester was going to look like, the kind of things that they aspired to or what, what they felt drawn to at the beginning of the book looked different towards the end. And um, more so, I, I would even encourage readers to walk away with a sense of openness when it comes to their purpose, um, be flexible in your purpose, be convicted enough to, to go after certain things that are important to you in your life, but also be flexible enough to understand that you're going to meet people who teach you different things. You're going to go through experiences that expose you to different stimuli, different, just different things that are going to shape and transform how you engage your purpose and how you ultimately um, achieve your purpose. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, thank you for all that. Uh, Real quick, let people know where they can cop the book. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the book is currently available on Barnes and Nobles. Um, There is a link that is in my Instagram bio. So on Instagram, um, you can find me at underscore Shola Alani. So that's underscore S-H-O-L-A, another A-L-A-N-I. So that's underscore Shola Alani. Uh, the Barnes and Nobles link is right there in my bio. Or you could just go on barnesandnobles.com uh, and just type in They Were Chosen or just Google They Were Chosen, a novel, and it should pop up with the Barnes and Nobles link. Great. Yeah, we'll definitely have your uh, Insta in the uh, bottom section uh, of the so, like in the more information section. So no worries on that if folks didn't catch that real quick. Right. Um, and Miguel, I'm, I'm, I apologize. I also just wanted to plug um, the the publishing press that I built to house the book and hopefully mm-hmm. in the future, more literature and products that promote purpose-driven living um, is Vision Speaks. So folks can also find a link to the book um, in the bio section of Vision Speaks. So on Instagram, that's at Vision, V-I-S-I-O-N-S-P-E-A-K-S, Vision Speaks. Excellent. Uh, I love it. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, uh, and we'll be back uh, to talk about some joy. Uh, 
duly needed in these times. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, and we're back uh, from the break. Uh, we're going to get into what brings our guest, Shola, some joy. So outside of your career, your writing, uh, what what is it that brings you some relief? What brings you joy, Shola? Yeah, so um, self-care for sure. Earlier, I want to say like midway through the pandemic, um, there was this there's this massage parlor that was still operating thankfully um with the masks and everything gloves everything i mean they were wiping down stuff like i've never seen before and i implemented uh a rule for myself where every month i have to carve out time to get a massage um and don't get it twisted like the rates were affordable so like (laughs) that made it even that that incentivized it a little bit you know what i'm saying i was like okay i could this for an hour like this much all right cool Um, so that's something that to this day, I still try to make time for, um, getting a massage in once a month, quality time with my loved ones, people that I really care about. Um, every, every other month I'm either spending some one-on-one time with my sister, my younger sister, Lola, or my mom, um, just to kind of like get out of the apartment, you know, be able to have a conversation in a a fresh space with some food. Sometimes that just brings a conversation mm-hmm. out. That just brings the good vibes out of people, myself mm-hmm. included. Um, and really just trying to cultivate peace. One thing, one thing I kind of, mm-hmm. I started telling my friends in July, um, a couple months ago, like I'm feel like I'm done with parties. Mm-hmm. I feel like when I go out, you know, it's, it's a good time. I like hearing my favorite music real loud, but then I can't hear myself. So now I'm yeah. trying to yell over the speaker and <laughs> I can project, but I'm not really trying to project at 1130, 12 a.m. That's not really the vibe I'm on. So really trying to be in more spaces where I can just be comfortable and just really be at peace with myself. And sometimes that looks like being by myself. Sometimes that looks it sounds like-, like you're getting closer to 30. That's what that sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm real close to it. <laughs> It's inevitable because, like, when I was when I was in my mid twenties, you know, everybody was just like everyone I knew who was inching towards there. I was like, "Damn, y'all so washed!" Like, <laughs> I'm gonna be outside forever. Like, right. what are you talking about? Right. I'm just like, "Damn!" Like, yeah, it's happening to me. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but but I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. Yeah. I was at a Lucky Day concert earlier this year. And- nice. It was great. My feet hurt. Uh, the The lights from the stage literally were blinding me sometimes. Some people were smoking in the venue, and my ears hurt. And I was like, "This, I might have to call concerts." I was <laughs> like, "This might be. I might have aged out of this experience." So yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Um, you did mention that you were just on vacation in Mexico. How was that? And uh, what are some other places on your bucket list you want to go to? Yeah, yeah. Tulum was fun. Um, <clears throat> I at first, so at first I had thought had thoughts of going to Tulum way before I, I truly ended up going. Um, the the major push for me was the opportunity to celebrate a friend of mine's birthday. So I went with a small group. It was about seven mm-hmm. of us. The B and B was beautiful. Um, we checked out a few different restaurants and did a few excursions. I ziplined for the first time. Wow! Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm like. I'm like six four, so like to just get get myself in a harness and all of that, like it's it's, <laughs> it's a whole process. But but we made it work. Um, I've always wanted to go ATVing. Finally got to do that, nice. so I was able to cross a few things off of my. Um, I don't want to call it a bucket list, but just cross a few things off of the list of activities that I haven't gotten to do that some of my friends got to do years ago. I would really love to go to Barcelona. Mm. Um, I first became attracted to Barcelona when um, when I was a kid, when I was I was a huge fan of Michael Jordan. I wasn't really alive to see him play 
for the latter end of his career. But mm-hmm. when I was eight, nine years old, really getting into the Air Jordan brand, I would watch his YouTube highlights and I also played basketball. So I was one of the few kids who actually wore Jordans because I like at the time idolized the actual man behind the brand more so than the trend. So in 1992, he was on the dream team. He played in the Olympics and there's footage of him in Barcelona, just walking around. And while all the fanfare is happening, I'm looking at the buildings I'm seeing how people are just like maneuvering in the street. And I'm I'm pretty sure 30 years later, Barcelona looks nothing like it did in 1992, but it looked beautiful. And I would like, I've always wanted to experience it because of that. Um, and then hopefully Greece someday. Cause Greece just, Greece just looks like a vibe, man. Like COVID canceled my Barcelona trip. I was supposed to go in 2020. Oh um, man. Yeah. So thanks for bringing that back up. <laughs> my boy just moved to Barcelona. Uh, oh wow! Yeah, 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 like my child, like my childhood friend, like like knowing this this dude since preschool. Up moved to Barcelona, had a kid, and I'm like, what? <laughs> God wow. damn, she's crazy. Um, and you, you seem like a pretty active person. Like it, it sounds like athletics played uh, like a, a large portion uh, of your like influences in, in in your life. But I also noticed something though, like. In your writing, there was like a bunch of low key nerdy references, yo. Like Dante's reading Yu Yu Hakusho, talking yeah. about uh, Jimmy Neutron. Like, do you would yeah. you consider yourself a, uh, a a nerd or a fan? And like, and like, what is your go to media to chill out to? Because I'm, I'm I'm low key. I feel like it might be manga. I don't know. So media has changed. That's one thing we gotta acknowledge, right? Mm, a lot sure. of the so a lot of the a lot of those little things that I plugged in are all things that I used to enjoy growing up. Um, literally the first the first page of chapter two, I made a tsunami reference. Yes, tsunami was tsunami was that was that was that wave at one point. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I fell off real hard on anime, and it, I don't know why. Like I think now there's just so much there's so much content, and mm. like so little time to like keep up with all of the like i went on netflix a few months ago and i was just like this is crazy like this is no (laughs) way um so i still have a soft spot in my heart for anime but i have i I have definitely fallen off i'm definitely not like up on like my animes or my manga like i used to be i remember um being 12 years old and first learning how to properly read manga because right, um, right, right, right. you don't you don't read it from like left to right. right like i remember going to the library and getting like a Yu-Gi-Oh manga it was and this was deep i was like this oh why am i not seeing this on the tv version like this is like all this stuff happening and i'm someone had taught me how to read from like right to left and like it was a whole thing right um but yeah jimmy neutron all that stuff like those, those are all like cornerstones of my childhood right now um a lot of my media has looked like um, it's really been like shows on HBO, um, hmm. Showtime. Um, I'm watching right now. I'm watching Raising Canaan from the Power mm-hmm. series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching Billions at one point mm-hmm. on Showtime, uh, Succession on HBO, and um, so you like that show. heavy stuff, huh? I mean, it's, some of it is funny. Some of it has a lot of like dry humor. <laughs> There's a show on HBO. Uh, I'm quickly gonna Google it while while you guys are here because I, I always forget the name. But I was so disappointed when they canceled, um, they canceled the season the season two. It's called Lovecraft Country. On oh, HBO. I love I love Lovecraft. We love Lovecraft. That yeah. show is like it's phenomenal. Like when we talk about, because for me it's a few things. How well is it shot? The cinematography. Mm-hmm effects Mm -hmm. i want how real does it really feel um Mm -hmm. storyline you know when when it comes to social justice i've seen a lot of social justice on tv that just Mm -hmm. doesn't really i could tell like the writer was just trying to check a box they weren't really Mm -hmm. invested in Mm -hmm. the tropes and lovecraft like they they and then sci-fi to to incorporate the sci-fi in a way that still fits within the arc of slavery and like 
it they 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 blew it out of the water. Yeah. I, I yeah. Lovecraft is one of them shows for sure. Yeah, always heavy, but history. yeah, heavy. But it's yeah. that one was heavy, but still like one of them good. I just like a good show, a good story, like a mm-hmm. well written story that's just shot really well. Yeah, I do miss Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you wrote a college story. Uh, so clearly your college experience had an impact on you. What are some of your favorite college memories? One of my favorite college memories was discovering um, the African student organization on my campus mm. for the first time. Because up until that point, I thought the only other place where I could see a group of West African students who were first gen was like at my church. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's how it's always been. Um, I'd be lucky if, you know, in high school or in middle school, I could identify from someone's name. Oh, like they might be Nigerian or, or they might be, their family might be from Ghana. But to see a group of kids, 20, 30, 40 plus kids, all first gen, all can speak or understand their native language and are all invested in actually like representing their culture out loud and boldly was mm. like a really dope thing for me. Really yeah. dope thing for me. Um, and uh, another memory that I really cherish was producing my first YouTube doc. So mm. I had a chance to intern at this, uh, I had majored in psychology and at the time, um, just like Kendra, uh, I had um, thoughts of being a clinical psychologist or a therapist. So I interned at this clinic called the Interpersonal Violence Prevention Center, IVP. And as part of my final project, uh, I was challenged with the task of just coming up with a campaign or just some kind of educational resource that would um, promote knowledge around consent, sexual assault, interpersonal violence. And I was like, well, I've never shot anything before. Like, let me, let me like, why not shoot a documentary or just shoot some content around how different students at Binghamton University are having this conversation around consent. Um, And I was like 19 at the time. So um, literally I I, I linked up with um, Nick Massiars, Oliver Lau, shout out to the two of them. And we put together a documentary called Let's Talk About It. Um, Sexual assault, no, sexual assault and the importance of consent, which is still on YouTube somewhere. Um, We designed a a skit, got to write out a skit, had all these cuts of different people sharing their perspectives. And that was just really fun, Mm. giving out consent forms and like finding different spots on campus, lighting and all. Like those are some of like my earliest experiences with like production that inspired me to want to create um emerge a couple years okay. later mm-hmm. um and um yeah yeah that was that was definitely one of my favorite memories nice no, that's dope uh you seem to be just like an hbo stand I, I, there was a, a a stringer bell reference from the wire oh, yeah. uh all about it you're out here with succession um and it seems like everything you you're, you're into is like grounded in reality but I noticed that the sci-fi portion of Lovecraft Country like got you. Uh, real quick, like last uh, question on on the joy piece, but like, what's your favorite like sci-fi property if you have one? Property? When you you mean like as a body of work? Yeah, like like, like sci-fi show, sci-fi book. Um, I, I I we we often find in these conversations that people of color we just gravitate towards something with some escapism, but that actually reflects parts of our our, our journeys. Lovecraft Country being a, a very like vivid uh, version of that, but like, what's your favorite overall kind of uh, fictional u- universe that has uh, a sci-fi bent to it? Yeah, well, I'm I'm gonna have to stick with Lovecraft because mm. I'm I'm not like an avid sci-fi person. Like, there are oh, some okay. people who like really get into the the crates. They really get in the weeds of like <laughs> different sci-fi catalogs. It's different. You're looking at them. Mm-hmm. I, I bet, you know what I'm saying? I don't want to insult you guys. <laughs> but for me, um, I didn't even know Lovecraft was going to go in that direction until it started happening. And it was just like, yeah. wait, hold on. <laughs> um, but I really appreciate the sci-fi element in Lovecraft because they 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 use it to do a number of things. But one one thing that they use it to do really well was to unpack 
um, identity, mm-hmm. like to unpack. Um, and I think Miguel used the word escapism. It's mm-hmm. ironic that you use that word because, um, and I don't want to like run through the whole plot, but there, there were some episodes where um, Jernay Smollett's sister's character mm-hmm. was like, she enjoyed the yeah. the, the magic the magical the magic that gave her the pri- literally gave her the privilege yeah. of being a white woman yeah, and what yeah, that yeah. came with that was insane i've never seen anything like that on tv before mm-hmm. ever i've seen magic on tv i've seen racism on tv and mm-hmm. the juxtaposition of black womanhood versus white womanhood or just blackness mm-hmm. versus whiteness but they brought that together in such a like insidious, mm-hmm. but like very understand. Like I just understood why she. I was like, I get it. Mm-hmm. I would like. I, I don't know if I would do it, but <laughs> I get it. I will see why someone would want to indulge in that. And yeah, they they th- that that show takes the cake in terms of sci fi and and like just like a really like solid, well written story. For sure, and you know uh, that would the uh, the sister character going through that is definitely like the most the most vivid example. I was also thinking about um, the mother character because uh, mm. uh, yeah, she kept naming herself. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 um, and she went through all of these different um, like eras in time and different mm-hmm. planets and all all, all these things. Right, like uh, they kind of took her away from having to be. Uh, a black mother in the sixties uh, and let her just be herself. Uh, and, and uh, it, it was a whole different kind of escapism and, and kind of going away from identity. Cause she kind of like dismantled it herself uh, via yeah. a, a millennia of, uh, <laughs> of uh, lifetimes, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. They, yeah they, I wish somebody would just pick that up. I know the budget was probably insane, but that, that was a good one. That was a good one that we lost. That was a good show. Oprah sure. should have brought it back on own. Listen, know. like Ava, somebody, like somebody, come on. come on, somebody do something. Let's yeah. let's do something. Yeah. Well, Shola, this has been an amazing conversation. It's so been good. Really nice to to get to know you over this this last hour. Hopefully, it's not our our, our last conversation. Uh, I'm sure you'll have another book to, to to put out soon at some point. Uh, Let's hope so. Maybe not. Maybe not seven years. Uh, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> maybe not seven years, but 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 at some point, at some point, yes. feels very safe. <laughs> at some point, okay. It's a good time That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we, we want to thank you for coming on. Um, and for everybody, that's uh, they were chosen. You can uh, nab it on Barnes and Noble. Uh, hit hit up Google, um, but also just check out Shola's work uh, on Insta. It's going to be uh, in the. Uh, more information section over here so y- y'all can get a lowdown on all, all these projects and everything um yeah y'all this has been an episode of the bipoc artist hour uh we'll see you back here soon peace